Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. I think sometimes we take things for granted. We just assume certain things are normal because we've heard them a lot or because our family or our culture or our society have deemed them to be normal. But if you stop and think about them for a second, you realize that there are a number of things in life that, that really don't make a lot of sense. For example, why are round pizzas placed in a square pizza box and then cut into triangles? Why is there no letter E in the grading system? It goes A, B, C, D, F. I'm familiar with this question because some of my grades were in that lower part of the system. Why are pants called a pair, but shirts are not? Why do dentists talk to us during an appointment? Why do we park on driveways, but drive on parkways? Why, when something is transported by a car, it is called a shipment, but when the same thing is transferred by a ship, it is called a cargo? Why does the man who invests your money called a broker? Why is there no egg and eggplant, ham and hamburger, and neither pine nor apple in a pineapple? Why do we recite things at a play, but play things at a recital? Why are there interstate highways in Hawaii? Think about that one. Why is it called quicksand if it takes you down slowly? Why is a boxing ring a square? If con is the opposite of pro, is Congress the opposite of progress? I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> Isn't it a bit unnerving that what lawyers and doctors do called practice? There are a lot of things in life that don't make sense when you take some time to think about them. And I think the same can be said for much of the Bible. It's a book that was written over 2,000 years ago that was written over a 1,500-year period of time. There are plenty of things in Scripture that when we take the time to consider them, they just don't make a lot of sense. Today's gospel lesson falls into that same category. This is a text that has become very common for many who have been Christians for much of their lives. And yet, if we take some time to consider it, it doesn't really make much sense. Here, Jesus is having yet another encounter with the Pharisees and the scribes, a relatively common occurrence for Jesus in the Gospels. He is often described as having confrontations with the Pharisees and the scribes, and this time, their frustration with Jesus is regarding the company he is keeping. You see, Jesus is a teacher. He's called rabbi by his followers. Therefore, in a way, he represents those who are learned Jewish authorities. And yet he tends to often behave and speak in ways that are contrary to the typical Jewish academic. Such is the case in this setting. Our scripture lesson this morning began, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. 
And they were saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So they were grumbling because he welcomes sinners. And not only does he welcome them, he joins them in one of the most personal forms of fellowship. He shares a meal with them. And when he hears the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious elite, he does not outright rebuke them. Instead, he tells them two stories, which is a very Jesus thing to do, to tell stories without any prompting. He told them this parable, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, he calls together his neighbors and his friends and throws a big party and rejoices and celebrates. Now, as I said, many of us have heard this story before. So we're accustomed to the notion that Jesus is concerned with the one individual sinner as much as he is the whole company of well-mannered citizens. And yet, if you were to hear this text for the first time or with fresh ears, it might actually sound a bit counterintuitive, does it not? If you yourself were a shepherd and you had 100 sheep, would you jeopardize the well-being of the entire flock for one absent wanderer? In a way, this, if this is an analogy for God, God seems a bit negligent or maybe a bit of a perfectionist. Why wouldn't God consider the greater good of tending to the 99 well-mannered Christians, I mean sheep, as opposed to turning his attention to the one wayward wanderer? But Jesus' audacity does not end there. He goes on to tell another story. He talks about a woman who, have, who has 10 silver coins. She loses one coin and she searches tirelessly until she finds it. And when she finds it, she invites her neighbors over and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. I myself have lost a thing or two in my day. Misplacing things is a bit of a specialty of mine. If you were to ask my wife, it is something... I take great pride in being able to accomplish pretty much every day. I lose something every time I wake up. She finally had me buy one of these trackers for my keys. It's called a tile. I can find it on my phone. It's amazing. I still lose my keys, but at least now I can find them. So I can relate to this woman's fraughtful search for her lost coin. However, I do not know a time where I was so excited to have found something so minuscule. So excited to have found something so insignificant that I post on Facebook, hey, everybody, I found this thing that's just, a, you know, it doesn't matter that much, but be excited for me and celebrate because it was lost and now it's found. So if when hearing these stories again, you're trying to imagine what it would have been like to hear these stories as listeners in first century Palestine, then perhaps you can empathize with the Pharisees' frustration towards this Jesus character. For religious leaders, these stories were way out of left field. They didn't even sniff the realm of normal behavior. They made no sense. But the reason these stories did not make sense for these ancient clergymen might be a little different than it is for you and for me. For these stories didn't make sense, not because of their logical shortcomings, 
or about some theological conundrum over God's behavior. It wasn't that they didn't make sense just because the facts are strange. No, the reason they did not make sense is because of what Jesus was implying by sharing these stories as a response to their misgivings about the company he was keeping. You see, when we hear these stories, we might eventually get to some grace-filled interpretation where we realize that God loved us even while we were yet sinners, and that proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. We believe in provenient grace and that God is pursuing us and loving us even before we know God. So in our minds, we are the lost sheep or the lost coin. And even though we are lost, God loved us and God searched after us. And even if we're insignificant in the grand scheme of the world, we are considerably significant to God. All the company of heaven rejoiced when we gave ourselves to the one true God. And if that is how you interpret this text, that is a good and a faithful way to understand how God cares for each of us. However, I think Jesus' implications were far more sinister than our sometimes self-indulgent inclinations might suggest. To the scribes and Pharisees, the people Jesus was eating with did not belong at the table with a well-mannered Jewish person, let alone an academic expert such as this Galilean rabbi. After all, he kind of represented their own social class because of his learned nature. The people Jesus surrounded himself with were sinners. They were tax collectors. In these people's eyes, they were irredeemable. It made no sense for Jesus to eat with them. And to make matters worse, Jesus not only ate with them, he justified his doing so by suggesting that these, yes, even these, were individuals whose salvation God and all the company of heaven would celebrate. Though they were considered to be outsiders and outcasts to the hoi polloi of the proper Israelite culture, they were considered precious to God. They were the lost sheep. They were the lost coin that God so desperately wanted to find. And this notion of God's desire to redeem and to love and consider precious, even the least in society, was an affront to their holy and pious sensibilities. This behavior by Jesus was just another straw on the camel's back that would eventually lead them to remove Christ from the earth. So what does this mean for us, the 21st century reader? How do we hear this text this morning here at Dauphin Way United Methodist Church? As I said, I do not think it's inappropriate to hear this text as a life-giving reminder that God has always cared for you and for me. From the very moment we were conceived, if you are in need of a word of hope this morning, let this be that for you. Even before you knew God, God loved you. When you were lost, God was still with you. Regardless of who you think you are or what society says about you, what your coworkers think of you, what your social class might be. You are priceless in the eyes of God. You are loved. God is for you. 
And yet, too, I wonder how this text could offer us the same stern realization Jesus intended for his audience in the ancient Near East. Can this text serve as a wake-up call for you and for me to realize that perhaps we are not being as welcoming to all of those who are the outsiders in our own lives, at work, in our social settings, in our church? Are we welcoming to our table the people Christ welcomed to his? When someone with less social status than you asks to spend time with you, do you offer them the time of day or dismiss them out of hand? When you encounter someone at work that is your junior or less tenured than you are, do you invite them to spend time with your colleagues or do you make them climb the social ladder before you will fully accept them? If someone were to walk into this sanctuary with jeans on or looking a little tattered, would they be welcome on your pew? Or would you look at them like a tax collector? This message is not just one of hope to those that are lost. It is a word of warning to those of us who are hyper-religious. Even further, it's a question, really. Jesus is asking those who should know best, will you celebrate when someone considered to be an outsider experiences the grace and mercy of God? Or will you neglect the celebration because it did not come on your terms or your definitions of religiosity? This text is a wake-up call, a reminder to all of us who would tell the shepherd, hey, you have 99 other sheep. Just forget about the one. Or to tell the woman, hey, you've got nine other coins. What's the big deal if one is lost? This text is a rebuttal to those of us who do not consider even the least to be precious. Alan Culpepper said in the Feasting on the Word commentary, whether one will join the celebration is all important because it reveals whether one's relationships are based on merit or mercy. I pray that we are a church that engages all people, not based on their merit, but based on God's mercy. Let us be welcoming and hospitable and offer love and grace to all people. I pray that every time somebody walks through these doors, they feel overwhelmed with feelings of acceptance and compassion and not left to believe that they are the tax collectors and sinners that are not welcome at our tables. How will you participate in the celebration of God's mercy? Who will you reach out to and encourage? And which of your relationships are solely based on merit? And how can you change them to be based on mercy? It doesn't make sense to live this way. This is not the fastest way to climb the corporate ladder. It is not the thing that will make you the most money. It is really antithetical to much of life in 21st century. But the gospel, it doesn't make sense. And yet we still choose to live it and follow it anyway. Let us love and offer grace based on mercy, not merit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.